You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 16 today. We're uh, preaching through uh, the book of Romans, and this is uh, quite a difficult section of Scripture that we've been looking at, uh, complicated, but mostly because it's so confrontational and convictional uh, to us. Paul's goal for this uh, part in Romans uh, is stated in Romans 3.19, at least in part, he says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That language is strong, but but necessary in light of the eternal truth that we need the salvation of God. And so Paul's Paul's pointed words uh, are also enormously significant and life-giving to us, Uh, but we have to persevere through them, and and eventually we'll get to talk even more about the glories of His grace and salvation. But today, more heart examination is needed. Verse chapter 2, verse 12, we read these words. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that The work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Lord, please help us now um, in the power of your Spirit to have uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. And I pray for your help as, uh, Lord, as I try to explain and proclaim, Lord, the good news, that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a a difficult passage uh, to understand, and and I think it's always important when we come to them that uh, we remember... Uh, I think uh, Alistair Begg says this, that, that the main, when you're studying the scriptures, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And uh, so it might be good for us just to step back for a moment and get our bearings in this whole chapter so that we can understand uh, what Paul is saying. Uh, Paul began chapter 1, verse 18, and he continues through chapter 3, and he's explaining to us our need for the gospel. And the reason is, chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Uh, God is righteous, and we are not righteous. And we need His righteousness, and that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus alone. Now, that is just a hard truth to accept Uh, because it is an affront to human pride. We don't like to acknowledge that we are are sinful in this particular way, and so Paul is laboring to make this plain to us over three chapters. So in chapter 2, he's dealing with those people who think that they might be the exception to all of this, namely the Jews, but really anyone who thinks that they have righteous reasons for God to exclude them 
in judgment and exclude them and, and, uh, you know, from this need of salvation. The Jews would have had the most difficult time with Paul's message. First and foremost, uh, the Jew was resting on the fact that he was a Jew. I mean, this is the point in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It, it's the subject. But, but Paul, you, you, we might imagine somebody in the Jewish congregation at Rome saying, but Paul, I'm a Jew. Uh, like the Pharisee in the temple who said this, Luke 18, I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Paul, clearly, I'm the exception. And so Paul is arguing in those verses that being a Jew will, will, will not matter ultimately, that all of us have no excuse, that we're all sinners before God. But the Jewish person might push back then and say, well, uh, I'm not just a Jew, but, but I have the law of Moses. Uh, you notice uh, that's who Paul was talking about in verse 12. When he says those without the law, he's talking about Gentiles, and those under the law, he's talking about Jews. Uh, the Jewish person might say something like this, well, because God has given us the law, us Jews, the law. This is absolute proof that we are His people, that we are saved. We're not in need of this salvation as the Gentiles are. But Paul counters in verse 13. We'll talk about it. You may have the law, but God is going to judge us by obedience. In other words, what he's saying to them is not your possession of the law, but your obedience to the law that matters before God. And the fact is that you've broken it. Well, then the Jewish person might counter, well, Okay, but we have the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And this is really the subject of verses 25 through 29 there at the end of the chapter. And they're saying to Paul, how can you say that we're no different uh, than the Gentiles when we have the sign of the covenant? We clearly are favored uh, before God. Even Paul had this attitude before he came to Christ. He wrote in Philippians, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He himself thought all of these things. I'm, I'm in a different category. I have the, the sign of, of the covenant. I'm a religious person. I, I don't need the gospel. And yet Paul is laboring with everything that he has, arguing that they do, in fact, need the gospel. The outward signs do not save us, but what rather we are in need of, all of us, is an inward heart change that only God can bring about. There's no favored status that exempts anyone from this and from the judgment. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. All need this salvation. I tell you, what Paul was preaching here 2,000 years ago might sound kind of distant to us because of some of the terminology, but it is still true today. The Word of God is up to date. It is always relevant, church. And it is just as relevant now as it's ever been before when it comes to these matters of salvation. For one, uh, Boyce notes this, it's hard for our perverted sense of being righteous in God's sight to die. This is true of everyone, Jew or Gentile or not. We always tend to drift toward that we are the exception. 
Or we like to perhaps come up with our own kind of man-made theology of how we think all of this is going to work out for our benefit, to our salvation in the end. And Paul is going to great lengths here to communicate to us that there are no exceptions. There's no exceptions to the coming judgment of God, and there's only one way to be saved from that judgment, and it is through Jesus Christ. I want to begin there this morning with the truth that the coming judgment is an essential part of the gospel. It's an essential part of the gospel. He uses an interesting phrase in verse 16 that I just want to start there. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's important for us, especially in this day and time when I don't think the whole gospel is being preached uh, as faithfully as it needs to be preached, that in the gospel of God and, and the judgment of God, that those two things are not in opposition to one another. Uh, Leon Morris writes this, the gospel does not preclude the thought of judgment. Indeed, it demands it. And, and, and it's exactly right, because unless judgment is a reality, there's nothing to be saved from. Why talk about salvation if there's nothing to be saved from? But there is, in fact, something to be saved from. And this is what Paul is, again, struggling for us to understand. These are heavy matters Paul is laying out. Three chapters worth of this. And it's very simple in, in terms of a theme that there is no good news if there's not the possibility of bad news. The grace of God, again, will not be all, be all that amazing to us as we sing about this and sing about the deliverance that we have in Christ, which we do every, every week. If we do not understand and internalize this truth, then we have, no, we have no great understanding of why we would ever need it in the first place. And so I just want to encourage you with Paul, and I'm laboring in my study over these things, uh, because it is, this is a long section here, three chapters worth of this, but, but we need to reject the idea that uh, we don't need to hear about the judgment of God, that all we need to hear about is hope and peace. That there is no true hope, there's no true peace, there's no true forgiveness or grace or joy that comes, all that comes with salvation, apart from understanding what we are being saved from. The judgment of God. I also want to draw your attention at this point to Paul's comment, according to my gospel. That phrase, verse 16, according to my gospel. What does this mean? Well, we already know in Romans that Paul does not mean that he has his own version of the gospel. That's not what he means by my gospel. Uh, because he's already, even in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, he's laid out for us the gospel which he's been set apart to proclaim. And he's gone, you know, great explanation there of the gospel that was promised in the Old Testament, he says, uh, verse 2, I think, revealed through the coming of Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, that this gospel, this grace is received by faith when we come to Christ. But the beautiful thing that Paul is pointing us here, though, when he says my gospel, it's not that he has his own version of the gospel, but he's pointing to the fact that he has appropriated this gospel to himself. He, he has made it his own. He, he, in other words, he, is, he knows Christ. 
He has come to him by faith. He believes the gospel. He has taken Christ into his life. He has made it his own. And so it's why that when believers hear a message about the judgment of God, however difficult it is in these moments to kind of slog through this, if you will, and and, and endure this, however difficult it is that we can, as believers, can always walk out these sanctuary doors with unspeakable joy, incredible joy, which is what I hope for you today, brothers and sisters. So that someone may ask you, why are you leaving here with such joy today? I mean, didn't you hear the preacher? We've been, we've been brought low because of our sins. He continues to preach about judgment, uh, the judgment of God in, in hell. How can you leave joyfully? It's because at that point, with a sparkle in your eye, you can answer, because I'm not going there. Christ is in me, and I am in Christ, and He is my Savior. He is my Lord. This is my gospel because I've taken Him in. Is that true of you? It is the most pressing question that must be answered in all of these studies. Have you received Christ? Have you turned from your sin and self and taken Him in as your Lord and Savior? You cannot know the glories of this gospel until you do. And your worship is going to be ho-hum. You're going to be wondering why we're singing about this salvation and deliverance all the time and why we celebrate this. Your service to Him is going to be lukewarm. Your pursuit of holiness in which you are hating your sin and fighting your sin and repenting of your sin is going to seem like so weird. Why why you want to be extreme today in that? Your discipleship is going to be weak and anemic um, all the way around But those who have taken Christ in, those who can say, my gospel with with Paul, who have been taken in by Christ, who have been brought low down to the pit to see this is the destruction that you've been saved from. Those who have made a conscious, who have been made conscious, aware of their sinfulness and the judgment of God, who know what they have been saved from, there will be unspeakable joy. There will be gratitude. It will color their whole life. It will set the direction for their life in every area of their life. It will transform everything about them. Ferguson notes here, this is why judgment is such an important part of the gospel because until, until my self-righteousness and my self-centeredness are pulled down, the kingdom of Jesus is not going to be built in my life. It's exactly right. So this is why Paul says that the gospel is a part as a part of it, the judgment is such an essential mass message for us to grasp. It's also why he spends so much time here tearing down uh, self-righteousness. Uh, so notice, secondly, the judgment of God is not averted by religious privilege. It's, it's not averted by religious privilege. Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, let me remind you of some terms here. When he's talking about the law, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. So when he says those without the law, he's referring to the Gentiles. And 
because the law of Moses was given to the Jewish people under Moses in the Old Testament. Now, if that's confusing to you, don't miss the main point, the clear point, because that's what we're after. The main thing is the plain thing. The plain thing is the main thing. Both Gentiles who weren't given the law and Jews who were given the law, the main point is they are both sinners. You see what he says? He says it right there. All who have sinned without the law, the Gentiles, and all who have sinned under the law. There's no special status given to the Jews because they possess the law. There's no special mercy for those Gentiles who don't have the law. All are sinners, all are accountable to God. That's his point. The judgment of God is concerned and interested only in this question of sin. And it doesn't matter who you are, if, you, if, you, if you've sinned, it doesn't matter any difference uh, make any difference if you're a Gentile or if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a member of the church, if you've never been a member of the church. It doesn't matter if you come from a great family or whether you don't. If, if you sin, then you're going to be judged according to your sin. That's what the Bible says. Oh, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. It will be no use turning to God on the judgment day and saying to God, but you're forgetting who I am. You're forgetting the profession of faith I once made. You're forgetting the church I belong to. You're forgetting the family I've came from. You're forgetting the nation I'm from. It will all be irrelevant. If you're practicing sin, having never repented and surrendered in faith to, to Christ, then you will perish in your sin. That is the word Paul uses, perish. For all who have sinned, verse 12, without the law will also perish. It does not mean go out of existence. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Perishing is contrasted with eternal life. Instead of everlasting life, it's everlasting damnation. It's a warning to us. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish. Notice uh, secondly, all who have sinned under, under the law will be judged. Now, the fact that he uses a different word there uh, is interesting. And I think this is teaching us that the standard of judgment that God applies to the Jews who had the law, had possession of the law, is higher than the standard of judgment he's going to apply to the Gentiles. This doesn't mean that there's a different destiny for either, either group who are still in their sins, that that's going to be settled, but it does imply that there's a difference in punishment. Not only are, are the Jews, those who have the law, and, and really lots of religious privileges that the Gentiles did not have, that the Jews will face a greater judgment if they don't repent and believe the gospel. Now, again, this is a warning for us, and, and if we apply this today, because, again, we are so blessed in our country, you, you, you can, you, there's churches on nearly every corner, right? There's Bibles in every house. 
You, you can hear the gospel on the radio and on, on the internet and all different kinds of places. You, you hear it here. Those who know the gospel and who hear that gospel and remain stubborn, refusing to repent, they're going, you're going to experience greater wrath from God than those who have never heard. We talked about this a little bit in Romans 1, about those who haven't heard the gospel, how Paul says they're going to be accountable to God in the judgment. But here, those who have heard and rejected it, woe is that man or woman. Greater judgment. This is teaching us that, third, the judgment will be based on the revelation that we have received. on the light that has been shined for us. This is the point of verses 13 through 15. Notice verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now this is the most complicated part of this passage, and it's important for us to keep in mind that this is about the judgment. This is the plain thing and the main thing. This is about judgment. So when Paul says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, I don't think he's saying there that the Jews were saved by being doers of the law. If that were true, they would have to keep the law perfectly their entire lives. And there's nobody who's done that, church, except Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect one. But his point here is to warn the Jews that, you know, just making this claim that you've heard the law or making a claim that you have special status because God gave Moses and the Jews the law is not enough to save you. Unless they allow the law to expose their failures and their need for salvation and cause them to turn to Christ, they're going to remain lost. And there's going to be greater judgment on the, on, on the Jews, knowing, having known the law, having been given that light of what displeases God and refusing to obey that, far from escaping judgment, Paul says, the judgment's going to be more severe for them. Where did Paul get this? Where did he, where, where did he get this theology? Well, interesting, he got it from Jesus. Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 41 and following, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all, for us or for all? And the Lord said, Jesus said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. And then look at verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they trusted, entrusted much, they will demand the more. That's pretty clear, isn't it? 
Both the sinful Jew and the sinful Gentile will go together into judgment, but the punishment will be greater for the one who knew more. Why is that? Because our God is impartial in His judgment, and He is right and fair. Now, Paul anticipates questions from the Gentiles here. What about them who didn't have the law? Remember chapter 1, Paul taught that everyone uh, has a knowledge of God in both their conscience and what they can be seen in creation, and therefore they are accountable to God. But notice here, Paul expands that, and he talks about how the Gentiles may not have been given the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, but that those laws have been written on their hearts as part of their conscience. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, Boyce is helpful here in pointing out three witnesses that give testimony to our sinfulness. That's what he's saying there. First of all, notice the word nature. And it implies, again, something of how God has created us or wired us. And what he's saying there, I think, is that we have a knowledge of right and wrong that has been kind of written into the fabric of of our lives. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, there's a general uh, regard for life, a general regard for honor and selflessness and such that, that kind of spreads from culture to culture. And again, that knowledge can be suppressed and man can become very evil, as we talked about at the end of chapter 1, but in general, it's present. There's a sense of that in everyone. And it makes them accountable before God. Even though they don't have the law, Paul says, they have this. We hear a lot today about unfair treatment. In all kinds of arenas of life, I think about uh, my kids when they were little arguing about what's fair or not fair. It's an everyday argument. Amen, moms and dads? Like, wear you out. And I would just quip. I would sometimes tell them that the fair was in August. And it, it wasn't August, but then August came, and I couldn't use that anymore, and I would tell them that life is not fair, and I told them that so many times. Uh, well, I remember uh, one, of, one of my uh, daughters uh, in preschool, uh, the teacher told us uh, a little girl in there had had a meltdown, you know, over crayons or something, and my little girl, four years old, put her arm around the girl and said, honey, life's not fair, you're going to have to get over this. <laughs> A lot of adults need to learn that. But the point is that there's this innate sense, even at an early age, that reveals exactly what Paul is saying here. You don't have to teach. They know what's unfair. Even little bitties. Right? It's a law of human nature, and it testifies that we know something is just not right. Something, there's, there's a sense of right and wrong. Notice that secondly, Boyce notes here, there's also something about the conscience. Verse 15, again, it's written on their hearts, but they're, they're also their conscience bears witness. And this is a part of, again, our created being that tells us that we ought to do right. It's slightly different. Robert Haldane writes here, knowledge shows what is right, but the conscience approves of it and condemns the contrary. There's something written in us and from creation. And then the third, there's the memory. 
It says that their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them. Our minds reminding us of what we've done or should have done or didn't do. And, and the Paul is saying here that though the Gentiles didn't have the law, they certainly had these three witnesses that are outworkings of the law of God in their lives, written on their hearts like internal prosecuting witnesses testifying of our sinfulness before God. And again, we can suppress that, and man often suppresses that, but Paul says we're going to be judged accordingly. Those who've been given greater revelation, who've received the law of God, the word of God, the gospel of God, and not responding to it are going to incur greater judgment. Once again, Lloyd-Jones puts this well. He says, every time you and I hear the gospel, our responsibility is increased. The more we have heard the gospel, the clearer our understanding of it, the greater is our responsibility. The more we have grown in grace and advanced in the knowledge of the Lord, again, the greater is our responsibility. And the principle, he says, that is being laid here is that God in His judgment is going to take all these things into full account. And he should, because he's a good, right, and fair God. One more truth, verse 16. Judgment, he he says, is going to be exercised by Jesus Christ. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You probably know this, but it's good to reflect on it for a moment. The Lord Jesus is both our Savior and our judge. He's our judge. Jesus made this clear. John chapter 5, verse 22, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the... That's Jesus. He goes on, verse 26 in John 5, For as the... Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, where is Paul getting all of his theology from? He's getting it from Jesus, isn't he? He's using even the same language. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil. Judgment according to works. And it's going to be at the hands of Jesus Christ. It's really it's vital for us to hear this and think about this because I, I've heard people say, I, I, I know what the arguments are that out there. They'll say something like, you know, I just don't believe Paul. I just can't get my mind around Paul here and agree with all this judgment talk. I just believe in Jesus. He's so loving. He's going to accept everybody. I would say to them, really? Which Jesus do you believe in? Because Jesus himself testifies that he's going to judge us one day. We need to feel the weight of this. There's coming a day when we will face Him. For some of you, you you've, you're spending so much time running. Running from Him. 
avoiding him, denying him, suppressing him. And the Bible says that one day you will come face to face with him. It will be true of all of us. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you see, if you wait till that moment, it's too late. Your confession then won't change your eternal destiny. Only your confession now. And the good news is, Jesus is not only the judge, he is the Savior. And the only one who can save you. And he is not a savior of your own definitions and choosings. Not of your own man-made theology, but one that's here in the Bible. The one who promises to judge those who do evil for all eternity. And the one who promises to save those who come to him. I put this before you again as the most important question of life. Have you come to Him? Are you, uh, have you turned to Christ? And why would you keep putting this off? Your nature, your conscience, your memory condemns you before God. Your sin condemns you before Him. But if you will humble yourself and you will stop resisting Him and turn from your sins and come to Him in faith, He will save you. Christian, do you realize the, the glories of, of the grace of God in all of this? And if, you hear, if you're hearing this today as a believer and this is ho-hum to you again and you're, you're not thinking these things through, realize, Christian, what you have been saved from. Realize the joy in this, the gratitude that should mark your life and the unending total praise that He deserves. Is this not shaping your life even now? Is it not shaping your life in the morning on your commute? Is it not shaping your parenting and, and your marriage and your relationships? Is this not causing you to pursue Christ and to want to pursue Him with everything that you have? It should. Heavenly Father, thank you again. These words are hard, they're hard to understand, they're hard to accept. Lord, please help us. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. And may you drive these things deep into our hearts and lives that it truly would transform us. Transform the direction of our lives away from judgment and toward everlasting life. I thank you for doing that in my life. We thank you as a church for doing that in our lives, but for those who 
are still in their sins, we pray that you would do it in theirs. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.